0: Following is a production of Born in Flames, a podcast on the sounds of protest, resistance, and radical alterity. This is a show tune, but the show for it hasn't been written yet.
1: Stay alive as a black family. We had to work. We had to keep secrets. We never complained about being poor or being taken advantage of or not getting our share. We had to keep our mouths shut as I walked across that railroad track every Saturday. So I knew to break the silence meant a confrontation with white people of that town.
0: Tension within any given moment is that nobody knows precisely where in the grand narrative our day's events will fall. As optimists, we can look upon events which happen, which seem to be starkly impacting people and creating cultural waves and think, this will be a turning point. Uh, this, will, this will be a tipping point. And as cynics, we can say, well, we've been in this moment before and you know, people got in a tizzy for a brief moment and... And life moved on, there's no reason to expect that this time it'll be any different. But overall, none of us know where the show is going because the show hasn't been written yet. As I start this recording, 70% of Jackson, Mississippi is without clean water. Jackson is a town in Mississippi where civil rights leader Medgar Evers was assassinated by a member of the local White Citizens Council, sort of Patriot Front or Proud Boys of their time. One of the precipitating events prompting Nina Simone to pen Mississippi Goddamn in September 1963. Jackson's population is around 85% black, a drastic shift from 1980 when the city was around 52% white. Two states over, Deep South Brethren in the state of Georgia just passed a fleet of restrictive voting laws that even the president denounced as Jim Crow in the 21st century. This is the same president who. Uh, was a man who once collaborated with Mississippi Senator James Eastland on opposing school busing, a tool being advanced by the civil rights community to expedite desegregation. Eastland was a senator in Mississippi throughout the tumultuous sixties, during which folks like Evers were terrorized for trying to register black voters and gain access to the polls. And uh, Eastland had handbills at his rallies which is, you know, the, the layout of the, the... Just like you would have at a, you know, Broadway show they have these handbills that would tell you what's going to happen. Um, and there were introductory paragraphs with rhetoric like, When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary to abolish the Negro race, proper methods should be used. Among these are guns, bows, and arrows, slingshots, and knives. Roughly around the same time, Roy Bryant took this advice and kidnapped and murdered 14-year-old Emmett Till while he was visiting his family in Money, Mississippi. New laws have begun springing up in the wake of the January 6th Capitol riots, in which supporters of the former President Trump marched into the Capitol building with Confederate flags to try to reinstall their white supremacist leader after he lost the election. But it's clear that many of these laws are not attempts to stop hate groups from overturning small-D democratic elections, but rather further attempts to outlaw protest in their existing forums. The disappointing showing of capital D democratic candidates in 2020 also found a new wave of rhetorical acts against abolitionists and defunders, declaring that America was not ready for such radical ideas, uh, the kind that have been the culmination of a better part of a decade's worth of Black Lives Matter actions. Go slow, these lamenters seem to be saying. The forces of power and white supremacy are consolidating, as they always do, to ensure that the show tune remains part of the same old familiar show. Not a new show, not one that is yet to be written, one which may be more interesting, more exciting, more equitable, and more just. Fifty nine years ago, Nina Simone saw the brutal indifference and callousness of these forces and rushed to write the unusual, dynamic, and enigmatic, angry protest howl. Mississippi Goddamn. She saw that there had been outrage about Emmett Till, Medgar Evans, and the latest incident, a bombing at the 16th Street Church, uh, Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, that killed four young black girls getting dressed in their choir robes to sing. Nina Simone, under her birth name of Eunice Wayman, had also played music for the local church of Tryon, North Carolina, as a young piano prodigy. Yet, despite the condemnation and outrage over these events, which came from all quarters, It seemed like nothing was fundamentally changing. The show was still waiting to be written. And her first impulse was not to write music. It was to run out, get a gun, and start shooting motherfuckers. But instead, she decided to use the only weapon that she had at her disposal to complete the devotional song the four little girls were interrupted from singing. Only this time, with new lyrics. Lyrics to reflect upon what had happened. And implied in the chorus of those lyrics were that during these moments of rupture in which the show threatens to go on, there are only two universal truths. Number one, everybody knows. And number two, god damn.
1: But the, tune, but the show hasn't been written for it yet This is a show tune But the show hasn't been written for it yet This is a show tune But the show hasn't been written for it yet
2: If you know truth And you respect truth you're not afraid of it You can sit at the welcoming table Langston Hughes. The justice is a blind goddess is a thing to which we black are wise. Her bandage hides two festering sores that once perhaps were eyes. The High Priestess of Soul, Miss Nina Simone.
0: August 17th, 1969, on a farm in upstate New York, the final day of the historic Woodstock Festival took place. The final night is largely remembered for Jimi Hendrix's performance. Yet, Hendrix was relatively unknown to the mostly white audience, and as such was shoved to the very end of the festivities at 9 a.m. the next day, uh, as crowds had already started largely packing up and heading home. Uh, Campgrounds had cleared, but Jimi Hendrix played in the early morning to... Kind of close out the festival. Earlier in the day, actually on August 17th, that was actually the 18th, but earlier in that day, 100 miles away, Nina Simone took up the stage to fire up an incendiary set at a different music festival. It was the jazz night of the Harlem Cultural Festival, which has come to be known as Black Woodstock, an event that was organized by the black singer Tony Lawrence and exclusively featured black talent. Her most confrontational piece of the night, although most of it was pretty political, was a tune alternatively referred to as Are You Ready or Are You Ready Black People. It was a poem written by David Nelson of the revolutionary proto-hip-hop funk group The Last Poets, who at this point had yet to record an album. The crux of this song was a call to radical direct action, including, but certainly not limited to, violence. Are you ready to do what's necessary, Simone says or a funky percussive palette. Are you ready to kill, if necessary, she asks? To which the crowd, and this is a jazz crowd, mind you, at first erupts in cheers. And then the cheers suddenly retract, perhaps unclear on whether they should be applauding this in this environment, which was being broadcast in a local New York affiliate. And also, uh, the crowd was under the watchful eye of the racist New York Police Department. But also, it's possible the crowd's weren't sure what their answer was they wanted to be motivated by the music the call and response of the the singer and the audience but they were a little unclear on where they stood because it was a little bit over a year after the assassination of martin luther king jr and it was unclear exactly what this movement was calling for and where it was headed
3: are you ready ready?
1: smash white things to burn buildings are you ready are you ready ready to build black things ready Ready to do what is necessary to do what is necessary to do Are are you ready black man are you ready? Black woman, are you ready? Are you ready, ready, ready? Give me good now. Give me good now. Give me good
4: now.
1: Are you ready? Are you ready to kill if necessary? Yeah, you Is your mind ready? Yeah. Is your body ready?
0: Yeah. The white establishment, the state, and the forces of racial capitalism, had already shown that they were not averse to violence. If it meant satisfying their ends, but it was an open question about whether the civil rights movement was going to go, continue to go down King's path of nonviolent resistance and civil disobedience, or whether it was ready to begin coordinated strikes in a retaliation for the violence that had been enacted against them by America since, let's say, roughly 1619. Is your mind ready? Is your body ready? Simone asked the crowd. Are you ready to smash white things, to burn buildings? are you ready to build black things? It's inflammatory rhetoric for sure, but could there be room for building black things in any kind of meaningful way without at first dismantling the institutions of white supremacy that acted as roadblocks to black liberation? Simone at this point had been playing to crowds of white liberals for over 15 years and was clear that though they'd cheer for her and lend her, her vocals, their uh, vocal support, they weren't about to surrender their privilege and their status willingly. And she concluded the performance by asking what is perhaps the song's most prescient demand most important. Are you ready to change yourself? Are you ready to go inside yourself and change yourself? These last lines with their notions of self-reflection may seem to suggest the eventual turn of much of the left throughout the seventies away from notions of changing material conditions on the ground and more towards looking inward and changing yourself earlier at that same concert, Simone performed her version of the Beatles' "Revolution," off their, uh, off her recently released "To Love Somebody" album. Simone's version is is almost like a piss take on the cynicism of the John Lennon's version. Lennon had been famously conflicted about the lines, uh, but when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Which he originally had cast as "You can count me in," uh, but he sort of changed his mind halfway through writing the song and and. Um, one could say copped out or one could say made an alternative choice Simone defines her version as sharp contrast to this and perhaps her most dramatic altering of lyrics that she'd ever done in her career Um, she says I'm here to tell you about destruction of all the evil things that have to end it's more than just evolution well you know you have to clean your brain the only way that we can stand in fact is when you get your foot Off my back.
1: Singing about a revolution because talking about a change.
0: So Lennon had been telling his audiences, millions of mostly white American kids, that you didn't have to change the institution. You only had to free your mind instead. And Simone called bullshit on this. While freeing your mind could be temporarily liberating, it would be no relief from the foot that was on your back. So why then was she now saying that the most important thing that wanted you to do was to go inside yourself and change yourself? Um, that's later on in the night She says she's saying this. And I feel like what she's asking here is something akin to what's been kind of a refrain in the recent films by the British documentarian Adam Curtis, who in interviews has been saying that his films are an attempt to ask audiences, do you really want change? Everybody knows that things are intolerable, that conditions are bad and getting worse, and we can even tell ourselves that we're ready. But are we actually ready to do what's necessary? Because the possibility of change doesn't just mean that someone somewhere will flip a switch or pass a law and things will get better. If we really want change, a big change, it also means that we might need to change ourselves in the process. And is that really what we want? Or do we want everybody else to change um, and evolve around us to catch up with us? Are we ready to change ourselves? Or do we want, just want to express our dissatisfaction and then quietly go back to the world in which we're comfortable?
1: And and this is the, the thing that one has to go back to if you want change. If you really want to change the world, you have to tackle power. Mm. And when
0: you tackle power, it's quite rough. And things will get quite, what's the word, iffy. (laughs) And I think the middle classes might find it a bit difficult. And I remember once having a thing with you when we were talking about this, just turning to the audience and saying, well, actually, really, you talk about revolution, you talk about change. Do you really want it? It will change the world massively for you. Or do you just want the banks to be a little bit nicer? Yes. Is that it? I think it is. And there was complete silence. Because actually, I do think at the moment in the West, people genuinely, they're nice, they're good. They really want change but they want change that isn't really going to disrupt the world. And I'm not sure that's really possible. In her autobiography, I Put a Spell on You, Nina Simone stated that Black Dwin didn't know what the hell they wanted because they were defined by other things that they didn't control. And until they had the confidence to define themselves, they'd be stuck in the same place forever. What Simone is describing here is essentially the notion of double consciousness. The idea promulgated by Frederick Douglass that oppressed people always contained within them not only their own consciousness as an individual based around their own thoughts and experiences, but also a separate consciousness, one that is constantly aware of the gaze of the other. A consciousness that is modeling its behaviors, attitudes, and even internal desires on the expectations and valuations of a domineering power structure. Double consciousness can be used as a system of control, making one consistently aware or of uh, how un- or undervalued they are in society, and choosing their steps wisely. At worst, it's a phenomenon that crushes confidence and holds back one's rightful anger against the ways the ideology of white supremacy persists, through both deliberate choices and unintentional bias. At best, it can be a survival mechanism that helps one avoid the fate of so many others who've been made an example. You know, don't wear a black hoodie in a white neighborhood don't talk back to the police, don't walk alone at night, smile, be agreeable, let that stupid joke slide. Be sure to be, you know, one of the good ones. In Jordan Peele's film, Get Out, Daniel Kalua's character, Chris Washington, manages to fend off an attack by a white liberal family who want to appropriate his identity by transferring their white consciousness into his black body. And he evades this fate, not only by his sly and cool awareness of the rules of polite bourgeois society, but also his suspicion that the black characters he meets seem to lack that lingering double consciousness.
1: It's fine. I wasn't trying to snitch. Snitch? Rat you
2: out.
1: Tattletail. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't you worry about that. I can assure you I don't answer to anyone. Right. All I know is sometimes, but if there's too many white people, I get nervous, you know? do something. That's not my experience. Not at all. The Armitages are so good to us. They treat us like family."
0: By allowing himself to, as the song that runs over the opening title sequence, Red Bone by Childish Tiambino says, stay woke, Chris is not caught sleeping and avoids having his blackness drift off into the ether of the sunken place. Since the abolition of slavery, the crisis of double consciousness has been the crisis between assimilation and independence, equality of freedom. Simplistic historical frameworks have often embodied this struggle through a sort of rivalry between the faction of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, but figures like Nina Simone complicate this binary. Simone frequently marched with Dr. King performed atop a stage uh, butchers by Coffins in Montgomery after the famous March from Selma, and wrote the loving and mournful Why? The King of Love is Dead, in Martin Luther King's honor after he was assassinated. However, she was also neighbors with Malcolm X and good friends with his wife, Betty Shabazz, and often endorsed ideas of separatism and winning her rights by any means necessary. Saying once, I favor militancy if it's the only means by which a Negro can win that ultimate freedom, the feeling of belonging, she told the Daily News, 1967. By any means necessary to Simone, like many others at the time, did not necessarily mean that one needed to exclude nine violence as a tactic. Certainly, any means provides various routes to get to one's destination, and ones that would reduce suffering would be preferable. However, when Simone looked upon the sheer brutality of the white majority and their apparatchiks in the state, that being law enforcement, segregationist politicians, secret intelligence services that spied on and targeted Simone, herself, and a number of her friends, and even the uncaring white moderate, when she considered all those, she didn't just think that nonviolence was, wouldn't be a tactic, she just didn't think it would be enough, and the assassination that took place throughout the 60s and 70s bore that theory out for her. Mississippi, goddamn for Simone, represented a rupture point with her double consciousness. Simone had not necessarily been apolitical prior to 1964 when the song was commercially released. She was a precocious child who mastered the piano as a toddler, skipped ninth grade, and would nevertheless become valedictorian. But as such, she was uh, she was also treasurer of her school's NAACP chapter when she was only sixteen years old. And it was through this that she would meet the radical poet Langston Hughes, who would later write a review of her first album for the black newspaper, The Chicago Defender, that was reprinted on the back of her Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood EP. And in that review, he compared her to Brendan Behan, Jean Genet, Leroy Jones, Bertolt Brecht, Raw Eggs, Billie Holiday, St. Francis, John Dunn, and Mort Saul.
1: Hughes died. He told me many months before, he said, Nina, keep on working until they open up the door.
5: One of these door days when the doors are open wide, make sure you tell them exactly what's happening so they'll have no place to hide. So I'm telling you, oh, I'm telling you.
1: It, you now oh, 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 oh. i'm gonna leave you with the blue yeah, yeah.
0: though many of her earliest work were standards albeit ones that ran the gamut from traditional folk jazz, blues, show tunes, gospel and spirituals, ballads, classical, and also European art music, Nina Simone often converted other people's music to her Afro-diasporic ends. She specifically tried to tie these familiar melodies and their experiences to Black consciousness in a way that would resonate with her intended audiences, particularly Black women, who she felt the need to connect with, perhaps more than any other group. This is evident in both the content and the titles of the songs she chose. Songs such as Brown Baby, African Mailman, Bye Bye Blackbird, and particularly Black is the Color of My True Love's Hair, as well as songs that were African themselves, like Zungo and "Flo Mila. Uh, These were all songs that were recorded before Mississippi Goddamn. So, though she wasn't explicitly preaching a political point of view, Simone did intend to make something of a statement with her music. Um was kind of like these choices it was it was coded language almost and her inability to stay pinned down to jazz which is what her music was ultimately marketed as was an attempt to express the multitudes that she contained she said it's always been my aim to stay outside any category that's my freedom Black.
1: My true love's hair is space, so soft and wondrous space.
0: In addition, she had played at demonstrations and other civil rights events prior to the recording of Mississippi Goddamn, but the traditional uh, biographical anecdote, repeatedly ad nauseam throughout her career, and there's no reason to disbelieve it, was that Mississippi Goddamn was the sound of Nina Simone being radicalized in real time. This is the sound of an artist and an aesthete an transforming into an icon and a visionary. Written quickly in September 1963 Simone claims that Mississippi Goddamn was written in under an hour although that's hard to believe even how powerful and how complex the song is Mississippi Goddamn did not see the light of day until early 1964 when it was first released as a single and then on the live album Nina Simone in Concert on Philip Records which was composed of a series of recordings from multiple nights that she spent headlining Carnegie Hall and it was produced by Hal Mooney who's perhaps most famous as an arranger um arranger is it's kind of a profession that's gone somewhat out of fashion it's essentially someone who took other compositions and made something new out of them somebody who conceptualized cover versions which were kind of the default mode at the time you know, albums would just be mostly a collection of cover versions and sometimes occasional um originals uh prior to the raucous uh, uh, obsession with authenticity, that's what you got. And he worked with um, other artists like Dina Washington, Sarah Vaughan, Judy Garland, other people like that. Um, So kind of envisioning Simone's career uh, in in that light. And her live renditions were infamous. She would often experiment with a new idea, substitute in new lyrics, and switch up arrangements, um, evolving songs again and again throughout her career. And even though she complained relentlessly about gigging, and the toll that nonstop tours and shows took and was often pushed into this constant gigging by her domineering, uh, finance-focused husband and manager, Andy Stroud, who is a former New York City cop who is physically, mentally, and sexually abusive towards Nina Simone, it is clear that the live captures were the main thrust of what Nina Simone wanted to project out into the world and over half of her discography consists of live recordings.
2: At this time, ladies and gentlemen, The Village Gate takes the greatest pleasure in presenting the amazing Miss Nina Simone.
1: Losing glues and were My bridges all were crossed Nowhere to go
0: Mississippi Goddamn is unique, in fact, in in that it was only ever released in live renditions. It's pretty unique in that way. There are plenty of other popular songs whose most famous rendition is a live recording. You can think of songs like Peter Frampton's Show Me The Way, um, Bob Marley's No Woman No Cry, Cheap Trick's I Want You To Want Me, Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison Blues, but each of those also has sometimes a lesser-known studio equivalent circulating out there somewhere there's a few other songs that sort of apply if you take something like Nirvana's uh, rendition of Lead Belly's Where Did You Sleep Last Night um, or his their, their version of David Bowie's Man Who Sold the World which were both performed on MTV Unplugged but these are not these are kind of one-off covers and they're posthumous ones as well so they're not quite in the same league and who knows whether the band would have Recorded studio versions had Cobain uh, stuck around a little bit longer. So Mississippi Goddamn is, is pretty unique in that it's this very kind of iconic song. And it's only in a live version. And the closest match that I can think of uh, in terms of a song that had significant cultural impact and was only ever recorded live is perhaps uh, Kick Out the Jams by the Detroit band MC5, which is another revolutionary track. But it's also far more of a cult song. And the MC5's manager, John Sinclair, was actually one of the founding members of the White Panther Party, which was founded in response to uh, Black Panther Huey Newton's call for white supporters of the movement to form solidarity groups that could be mobilized in tandem with Black Panther calls for action, Uh, sort of akin to uh, Fred Hampton's attempts to build a rainbow coalition. But Kick Out the Jam's maybe most well-known for its opening curse word when singer Wayne Kramer declares that now is the time to... Swearing is no stranger in popular music. As far back as the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, singers like Lucille Bogan, under her surname Bessie Jackson, can be heard saying things that could almost make Cardi B blush.
3: Now fucking was a thing that would take
1: me to hell and I'd be fucking in the studio telling the clock's back level all day. That is shaving dry. I'll fuck you, baby. Honey, i and make you cry. Now your nuts hang down like a damn bell clapper, and your stick stands up like a steeple. Your goddamn ass hole stands open like a church door, and the crab walks in like people. Ow! Oh,
0: but these were limited edition party records, not popular songs designed for radio play. Unlike Mississippi Goddamn, a single from the global sensation behind the 1959 smash hit I Love You Porgy. And the word goddamn occupies a peculiar place in popular consciousness, as it's actually a curse or a profanity, to be more precise, that only attains power in its portmanteau. As the late-night talk show host Steve Allen proclaimed pri- prior to Simone playing the song in September of 1964, if I may speak of this entirely without passion, the first word is God, And the second word is damn. And I think everyone up this late at night who can afford to pay for a television set is adult enough to recognize that one not only hears that expression, but most of you say it when you hit your thumb with a hammer. But more than just a swear evoked out of frustration, it's the insinuation of blasphemy that riled and perhaps in some circles continues to rile so many ears when they hear the word goddamn. The word goddamn has traditionally been viewed in christian circles as a violation of the third commandment which expels that thou shalt not take the lord's name in vain although nina simone was not the first person to use the word in a song she was the first that i can identify to put it in the name of a single a few years prior in 1960 a singer named oscar brand who sort of sang kind of folk songs aimed at entertaining gis had a tune on one of his albums called the goddamn reserves and there was another folk singer named sandy Patton who had another tune, uh, which I can't find a recording of, which was called The Goddamn Cat, this time spelled in the way that Nina Simone spelled it without the N at the end. But Patton and Brand were both white men trafficking the colloquial and sometimes cruder working-class language of folk. Here was Nina Simone, a decorated black woman with deep authoritative throaty voice who was classically trained virtuoso, playing in the classier milieu of jazz vocals, in Carnegie Hall no less, where they tell you to wash and clean your ears and talk real fine just like a lady. Coming out of the gate swinging with a bold and provocative denunciation, it was unheard of. Even harder forms of jazz like bebop or free jazz at this time were still sort of tied to an aesthetic of respectability politics. Musicians were encouraged to look a certain way, dresses and suits and ties like they were on their way to church, speak with perfect elocution when addressing white audiences and the white music press. And Simone uh, grew more weary of this standard as yet another form of social control. As the 60s bore on, she even got more temperamental and even confrontational with her audiences. And there's hints of this in the banter surrounding the recording of Mississippi Goddamn that wound up on Nina Simone in concert, which we'll go into in a bit. But one of her first firing shots against the Gray Flannel Suit Society came in the form of what Daphne Brooks calls Nina Simone's legendary cursing song. As could be expected, Bible Belt radio stations banned the song, including even some black radio stations, and boxes of promos that were sent out to the stations were returned to the record company with the records broken in half so that nobody could hear them. Sleeves of the Single couldn't even print the proper title, and instead said on the sleeve, Mississippi, asterisk, at sign, exclamation point, exclamation point, question mark, asterisk, at sign, exclamation point, comma.
1: The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset made me lose my rest and everybody knows about mississippi
0: i was actually surprised in researching this podcast how many primary sources from this time in fact did print the title of the song because i still remember radio and mtv bleeping the word goddamn on songs like Marilyn Manson's Get Your Gun, whose opening line is, Goddamn y'all right, when I was a teenager. And in fact, a 2009 NPR story found that even then, the word was still too hot for primetime, with CBS and NBC still not permitting the word to be said on the air at that point. This seems a bit more archaic now, but it's still a pretty deeply held belief among the evangelical community. Ten years later, on from the NPR piece in a Washington Post article on Trump's frequent use of the word "goddamn," said it many, many times. There's a megachurch pastor, uh, Reverend Robert Jeffries, who says, "I think it's offensive to use the Lord's name in vain. I can take just about everything else except that. So that that's the one thing that about Trump that he you know, fucking never mind. And I th- think that it's in this condoning of the tyrannical reign of white supremacy that we can encounter the crux of Mississippi Goddamn's power, and always leave it to a white southern preacher to perfectly demonstrate that notion of bad faith. Because, of course folks, we're not overly concerned about Nina Simone saying a curse word. Just as these same bewildered minds weren't outraged over Megan and Cardi saying wet ass pussy, or Lil Nas X riding a stripper pole to hell to grind on the devil or even black athletes disrespecting a flag. It was about black folks being insufficiently deferential when white authority established the rules for propriety for them. Being told when to sit and when to stand and when to go slow.
1: Don't tell me, I'll tell you. Me and my people just about do. I've been there so I know you keep on saying go slow. Well that's just the trouble. Washing the windows, picking the cotton, you're just plain rotten.
0: Simone was having none of it because Nina Simone was goddamn angry, and her anger was righteous. In the song, the word goddamn hits on a major chord crescendo because the goddamn is the positive part. She wanted her indignation to be not only a weapon but a tool of liberation. As her good friend Dick Gregory said, if you look at all the suffering black folks went through, not one black man would dare say Mississippi goddamn. We all wanted to say it. She said it. Mississippi Goddamn was not only the sound of Nina Simone being radicalized. It was the sound of her kicking down the door to let other people become radicalized too. She was asking black America, and white America for that matter, Do you really want change? But the real incredible thing is not just that she dared to say it when everybody else was just thinking it, repressed by their double consciousness into accepting a status quo that everybody knows is wrong the real vanguard thing about mississippi goddamn is the form that this anger took that of a show tune but the show for it hadn't been written yet a jaunty piano bass and percussion loops start bouncing about in an upbeat vaudevillean way the name of this tune is mississippi goddamn the singer says causing her audience hearing for the first time the name of the song to erupt in laughter and applause as the jaunty melody continues uninterrupted She patiently waits until the last laugh has died down before proclaiming, and I mean every word of it. The anxiety of the audience is palpable. The first response of a 60s audience is, of course, laughter. The music seems to be offering clues about the comedic nature of the tune. What comedic series of errors or manners or slapstick might precipitate a song to be entitled with this bout of naughty language? An unrequited love? A series of regrettable moments? just to evoke the name of Mississippi in the 1960s, seems to evoke the specters haunting the present from that era. But they wouldn't necessarily be fresh on the minds of audiences back then, for whom there was an alienation between the arts, meant for entertainment and distraction and spectacle, and the bloody arena of politics. This was still Hayes Code America. The Best Picture winner in 1964 was My Fair Lady, about the transformation of a rough-and-tumble girl who washed and cleaned her ears and turned into a lady while the Tony went to Hello, Dolly, about a quirky matchmaker who finally lands a man herself. Surely the sonic stage that was set did not suggest a morose, fiery condemnation of state-sanctioned acts of white domestic terrorism and a rollout of grievances from deep within the heart of an oppressed race, but Simone was living out the double consciousness on stage. A respectable singer given center stage at Carnegie Hall, but still a second-class citizen, forced to eat at separate lunch counters, attend separate schools, it's not until about two-thirds of the way through the song that she even acknowledges that laugh that she received when announcing the title, in the process evoking a sort of geographical tour of civil rights abuses, slavery, dogs chasing down protesters, schoolchildren sitting in jail, constant fear of death, and even loss of religion. After this, she pauses for a breath and says, Bet you thought I was kidding, didn't you? I bet you thought I was
1: kidding, you know? Picket lines, school boycotts They try to say it's a communist plot All I want is equality For my sister, my brother, my people and me Yes, you lied to me all these years You told me to wash and clean my ears And talk real fine just like a lady And you'd stop calling me Sister Sadie.
0: Simone has said the biggest musical influence on Mississippi Goddamn was Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Wiles Moon Over Alabama, sometimes known as the Alabama song uh, from the German play The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany, probably best known from the Doris version. She saw the two songs as inextricably linked, uh, so inextricably linked that she was even known to combine them in performances. Uh, such as this infamous performance from 1984.
5: Lord have mercy on this land of mine. we all gonna get it in due time. I don't belong here. I don't belong there. I've even stopped believing in prayer. This song, as you know, is written by Nina Simone. It's very much like 1932, in which at uh, that time Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill wrote another song, called Moon Over Alabama. In fact, they wrote several songs from Mahogany, but there isn't time to do them all. What we're going to do is combine Mississippi Goddamn with uh, Moon Over Alabama. Show us the way to the next whiskey bar. Don't ask why, you know why. But we must find the next whiskey bar For if we don't find the next whiskey bar I tell you must die I tell you must die I tell you, I tell you, I tell you we must die Oh, moon of Alabama We now must say goodbye We've lost our good old mama I must have whiskey, you know why, don't ask why, for moon of Alabama, now I must say goodbye, we've lost our good old mama, our good old mammy, and mercy you our wife. Show us the way to the next little dollar, don't ask why. You know why? For we must get some money. For if we don't get any money, I tell you, must die. I tell you must die. I tell you, I tell you, I tell you we must die. Alabama's got me so upset. The whole damn thing's making me lose my rest. Everybody
0: Now, Brecht is f- famous for his avant garde theater techniques, such as his alienation effect or Verfremdung effect. I'm going to have to, I might have to put in how that's actually pronounced because I don't know if I can. Verfremdung effect.
4: Verfremdung effect.
0: Alienation effect, let's call it. Brecht's plays employ antagonistic techniques of irony in third wall breaking as a means of dramatic de- deception, drawing attention to the distance between the experiences of the performers and those of the audience by creating emotional dead space, distancing themselves from the performance, and forcing them into a situation where they can critically assess things like political context, relevance to the outside world, and how the form and structure of the play inform that the way that the story is being told. This is not exactly what Simone did. As uh, Daphne Brooks articulated in uh, an academic article on Nina Simone, she said, Simone's invocation of brecht work is a project less invested in remaining faithful to the literal tenets of Brechtian ideology and more focused on producing interpretive deformations of Brechtian text that paradoxically generate an alienation effect. Her work dares audiences to see and hear America, in quotes, differently and on a different frequently. Simone stops the audiences from losing themselves in the romance of the black female singing voice. And for Simone, emotion was key to the performance. It wasn't exactly something that she would give up. Uh, Black folks already lived with enough fake exteriors to make putting them up on stage redundant. And from these 1960s performances, a rich black tradition of authenticity, grit, and particularly soul emerged to reveal what the double consciousness had been masking um, this whole time, to the benefit of white power. Uh, However, by posing her angry tract as an upbeat show tune, Simone in Mississippi Goddamn was using irony to attempt to pull the audiences out of the performances and spring them into action, asking them repeatedly, can't you see it? Can't you feel it? And later, why don't you see it? Why don't you feel it? Pleading with them that this was not just a story that a nice singer dressed in her Sunday best at Carnegie Hall was telling you. This was really happening right now. It was the world that Simone would soon re-enter, uh, right after she walked off stage into a country that was founded on lies that she couldn't trust anymore. And that was, as Dr. King would later say, approaching spiritual death about to die and die and die like flies.
1: Oh, but this whole country is full of lies you all
5: gonna die
1: and die like flies I don't trust you anymore You keep on saying, go slow Go slow Well, that's just the trouble Mass participation, unification.
0: white crowd had come out to this concert to show how liberal and progressive they were, and even, to some extent, to be in thrall of a black performer who could take them to new places. They could even cheer her on, giving her support by saying that they too were fed up with the pace of change. But then, they would pack up their things and head home. Because, after all, this was only a performance of anger, viewed through the context of culture. Not actual change. And it was an open question. Did they really want change? Or did they just want a show? But the show hadn't been written yet. As I mentioned before, Nina Simone got famously temperamental with her audiences, and at times she would say that a certain song she was playing was only for the black members of the audiences. When she was unhappy with the sound, she would walk off stage altogether and not return. This was far from a managed presence, as most people would define it, and some of this can no doubt be attributed to issues that were outside of the musical arena. Her tumultuous marriage, her undiagnosed bipolar disorder, etc. But in interviews, she also expressed a kind of frustration about the nature of concert performances, which she saw as a kind of cat-and-mouse show, a bit of spectacle combined with musical tricks for an easily dazzled audience. Who could be manipulated into cheering on whatever you instructed them to go for. But when the lights went off and the show was over, things went back to the way they were. And that was just the trouble. Too slow. At the behest of her dear friend Lorraine Hansbury, author of A Raisin in the Sun, Simone took Mississippi Goddamn on the road, and it became a sort of unofficial anthem of civil rights marches and demonstrations. Hansberry had personally reached out to Simone and asked her what she was ready to do for the movement. Hansberry was part of a downtown Greenwich Village scene of artists, authors, playwrights, and poets that Simone had fallen in with, folks like James Baldwin, Mira Baraka, Hazel Scott, and of course, Langston Hughes. When Simone says in Mississippi Goddamn that picket lines, school boycotts, they try to say that it's a communist plot, she is of course speaking about the bad faith attacks to paint the movement for equal rights in conspiratorial alliance with the Soviet Union. For their part, the Soviets did try to ally with the oppressed people of the United States in, in a way uh to both spread communism abroad and to shine a light on the hypocrisy of America's so-called advanced system of justice. And for some time, uh especially in the 30s, this this did have some import with the Soviets, but as time went on and uh you know, Stalin kind of had all these abuses that were coming to light and this was in tandem with the sort of draconian effects of the Red Scare. um, Membership in the CPUSA, the Communist Party of the United States, had uh, drastically been reduced. And basically the word communism became its own kind of curse word in and of itself, uh, that which dare not be named in polite society. And the black population, under the leadership of Martin Luther King Jr., SNCC, and others, uh, tried to distance themselves from communism so that they could gain credibility among a white power structure that was in the grips of Cold War hysteria. Still, many of the organizers and collaborators were variously aligned with the radical left, and even King himself in private conversations um, and certainly in the rhetoric of his later speech seemed to identify as a democratic socialist. Still, these somewhat secretive alliances and alignments couldn't have been far from Simone's mind as she became radicalized by Hansberry and her new friends. In her autobiography, Simone wrote that Although Lorraine was a girlfriend, we never talked about men or clothes or other such inconsequential things when we got together. It was always Marx, Lenin, and revolution. Real girls talk. Lorraine was most definitely an intellectual and saw civil rights as only part of the wider racial and class struggle. Lorraine started off my political education and through her I started thinking about myself as a black person in a country run by white people and a woman in a world run by men. And here's Lorraine Hansberry speaking about this in the early 60s.
6: Can't you understand that this is the perspective from which we are now speaking? It isn't as if we got up today and said, you know, what can we do to irritate America? You know, it's because that since 1619, Negroes have tried every method of communication, of transformation of their situation from petition to the vote, everything. We've, all, we've tried it all. There isn't anything that hasn't been exhausted. Isn't it rather remarkable that we can talk about a people who were publishing newspapers while they were still in slavery in 1827, you see? They've been doing everything, writing editorials, Mr. Wexler, for a long time. Uh, you know. And now the charge of impatience is simply unbearable. I would like to submit that the problem is that, yes, there is a problem about white liberals. The problem is... We have to find some way, with these dialogues, to, to show and to encourage the white liberal to stop being a liberal and become an American radical. Since we closed on a peculiar note before the break that I for one would like to identify my position. Uh, radicalism is not alien to this country, neither black nor white. And we have a very great tradition of white radicalism in the United States. And I've never heard Negroes boo the name of John Brown.
0: Likewise, even though Simone herself never seemed to hitch her wagon to a specific ideology, Baldwin, Hughes, Baraka, and Scott were all at one time affiliated with either socialism or communism. Hazel Scott was dragged before the House of Un-American Activities Committee for her support of Benjamin Davis's run for New York City Councilman in the 1940s. Um, Davis was a black man who was sent to president for five years, along with 11 unders under the Smith Act, which was a bipartisan attempt to root out all communists from holding public office under the just the most specious of terms. And Hughes had written in communist journals as a young man, at one time even publishing the poem, a new song, which ended with the following lines of optimism. Revolt. Arise. The black and white world shall be won. The worker's world. The past is done. A new dream flames.
1: I committed crime, Lord, I need Crime of being hungry and poor I left the grocery store, man, breathing When he caught me robbing his store I hold it steady right there while I hit it Well, I reckon that ought to get it in work
0: These artists and thinkers were already looking beyond black collaboration and towards internationalism, a world without borders. These were new and exciting concepts, which arose in no small part because America, in its conception, had failed these artists so greatly. The concepts of American exceptionalism and American nationalism were still relatively new, too but had caught on like wildfire through the intense wartime propaganda and patriotism of World War II. At that time, civil war and reconstruction were still within living memory. Revolution in America didn't seem impossible to the elites who controlled the country. Governments throughout Europe, Asia, Latin, and South America had changed rapidly throughout the 20th century. And this terrified not only the politicians, but whites in non-integrated communities, who were provided with a rotating cast of immigrants and ethnic groups to be fearful of. And as America had come to define themselves by the nativist and nationalist impulses, Nina Simone took them at their word when they said stuff. Mississippi Goddamn has her not only equating America with a history of lies about equal rights, told to mask and excuse its actual foundation on white supremacy, something another one of her friends, Stokely Carmichael, had eventually picked up and articulated
2: Miss Simone says something very significant in her song, Mississippi Goddamn. She says, this country, she says, this
5: country is built on lies.
0: She also uses the song to show how the alienation bred by these normalized acts of violence against black bodies makes her feel un-American and even anti-American. I don't belong here, she says. She repeats it again for effect. I don't belong here. You don't belong here, the Greek chorus of policy choices, and white citizens' councils, and sundown towns, and fashion magazines, and police wagons, and depleted social services, and diminished wages, and rape culture, and op-ed columns, and the entire ecosphere of colonial, patriarchal, capitalist Jim Crow America seemed to scream back. It's hard not to see Simone as reading the signs America was putting out correctly. Simone did not see her country as the scrappy little work in progress it's frequently sold to the world as, an incubator for new ideas on a moral arc that bends towards freedom. Rather, she envisioned it as a literal horror show, akin to something like what Toni Morrison had set down in her novel Beloved.
3: The death spasms that shot through that adored body, plump and sweet with life, Beloved might leave, leave before Setha could make her realize that worse than that, Far worse was what baby Suggs died of, what Ellen knew, what Stamp saw, and what made Paul D. tremble. That anybody white could take your whole self for anything that came to mind. Not just work, kill, or maim you, but dirty you. Dirty you so bad you couldn't like yourself anymore. Dirty you so bad you forgot who you were and couldn't think it up. And though she and the others lived through and got over it, She could never let it happen to her own. The best thing she was was her children. Whites might dirty her all right, but not her best thing.
0: Mississippi Goddamn makes a clever comparison between the ostensible urgency of labor, forced labor, it's implied, but also underpaid and underappreciated labor, versus the lack of priority given to granting people their rights. They keep saying, go slow, that is, unless you're washing the windows, or picking cotton, in which case you're lazy and rotten and going too slow. The priority is to perform the tasks that serve the interest of the ruling class in the white hierarchy, accept the scraps that you're given, and then wait around until they decide to treat you with dignity. And what's the goddamn hurry?
7: Now I would like to mention one or two ideas that uh, circulate in our society, and they probably circulate in your society and all over the world uh, that keep us from developing the kind of action programs necessary to get rid of discrimination and segregation. One is what I refer to as the myth of time. Uh, There are those individuals who argue that only time can solve the problem of racial injustice in the United States, in South Africa or anywhere else. You've got to wait on time. And I know they've said to us so often in the States and to our allies in the white community, just be nice and be patient and continue to pray. And in 100 to 200 years, the problem will work itself out. Uh, We've heard and we've lived with the myth of time. The only answer that I can give to that myth is that time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. And I must honestly say to you that I'm convinced that the forces of ill will have often used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill. will. And we may have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around saying, wait on time
0: desegregation, mass participation, reunification. Nina Simone sees them all as tactics and strategies beset by their own glacial pace towards the ultimate outcome, one that she didn't articulate but which Stokely Carmichael soon would. Black Power. (laughs) The Chorus of Mississippi Goddamn comprises a mini-tour of the South to summon the outrage around some of the frictions taking place around there. Alabama has her so upset. This, of course, is the infamous bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, um, a city which was nicknamed at the time as Bombingham by how frequently it was targeted by acts of terrorists. This bombing was carried out by four members of the KKK, who set off 19 sticks of dynamite and killed four little girls and injured about 20 other people. The church itself was a popular meeting site for activists who were passing through um, the area. And trying to make headway on desegregation or voting rights or things like that. And most people are aware of this event. It's it's a fairly popular one in civil rights history. Um, They've heard of the four little girls. Addie Mae Collins, 14 years old. Cynthia Wesley, 14 years old. Carol Robertson, 14 years old. And Carol Denise McNair, 11 years old.
1: I hate it. So, so-
0: You remember Johnny Robinson, 16 years old, who was murdered after being shot in the back, being chased down an alleyway by police officers not long after the bombing, apparently in some kind of scuttle where he was throwing rocks, possibly, but also we know how the police are want to lie about that stuff. And also Virgil Ware, a 13-year-old boy who was in a nearby town, who was shot and killed while riding his bike on the front handle of a bicycle being peddled by his brother. And he was shot by a white teenager who had just come home from an anti-integration rally. So six people were dead because of that. And so Alabama had Nina Simone so upset, which is understandable. And Tennessee, on the other hand, had made her lose her rest. This one's a little less clear on what she meant. Tennessee uh, was a hotbed of voter suppression. Riots over lunch counter sit-ins, and uh, there were even some bombings there as well. And in 1957, in Nashville, a newly desegregated schools began integrating in the intentionally dumbest and most dysfunctional way possible, wherein there were racist zoning quotas on who could be allowed into what area, which meant that less than one in every 100 black students even qualified to attend a new school. And those who did were rightfully weary of being sent into a dangerous situation where their children... Uh, were not guaranteed protection from the hostile locals nevertheless some brave students did attend some white schools including one six-year-old black child who went to hattie cotton elementary school that is until the end of the first day of school when the school itself was dynamited now luckily the school was empty at the time and no one was hurt but the intimidation tactic worked and there were uh, in the entire city of nashville Only 11 black students finished out the year in the newly integrated schools. And of course, everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. We've got Alabama, Tennessee, and everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Mississippi, where Emmett Till was lynched three days after offending a white woman at a grocery store by whistling at her. The whistle was possibly on a dare from some local boys, or it could have been because whistling was apparently a device that he used to overcome the fact that he had a stutter, but nevertheless was kidnapped from his home and lynched. And if Till were alive today, he'd actually only be about two months older than uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. So this is not ancient history. And this is Mississippi where Medgar Evers was shot to death by anti integrationists where police had not responded to, To previous attempts on his life, such as a car attempting to mow him down in front of his NAACP office, or a Molotov cocktail that was being thrown into his house. Evers himself had worked for several years on a high-profile case to integrate black student James Meredith into the University of Mississippi, which was eventually successful. Simone mentioned the case of Meredith on her Steve Allen appearance as one of the events that inspired her to write the song. A few years after Mississippi Goddamn came out, in its first appearance on uh, Nina Simone Concert, James Meredith decided to go on a march against fear from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Alabama. And he was sort of a popular figure at this point. He was uh, famous for his uh, case against the University of Mississippi and winning that. And he wanted this trip to be a solo trip, so he didn't invite any other civil rights organizations along. He thought that they were going to just kind of steal the spotlight, make it into their own thing, and he just wanted this to be kind of like... Uh, An individual uh, act of perseverance but on the second day of the March he was shot and he was severely wounded and those civil rights groups that he asked not to come SNCC which is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or the SCLC uh, the Congress of Racial Equality or CORE they all decided to finish what Meredith had started and Brought about 15,000 people along with them. And during the march, uh, on their way to Jackson in Greenwood, Mississippi, Stokely Carmichael, who was standing in for Dr. King, who at that time had temporarily left to work on housing in Chicago, addressed a crowd and said, This is the 27th time I've been arrested, and I ain't going to jail anymore. The only way we're going to stop them white men from whooping us is to take over. What we got to start saying is Black Power. And it was, at the heart, ultimately, a drawing of division lines within the movement, one that that was seemingly anticipated by the final lines of Mississippi Goddamn, which settles for separatism over the long wait, but not without a demand. You don't have to live next to me, she says. Just give me my equality. Black Power itself was merely a slogan, but it carried within it the seeds for a new shift both for the movement itself and for the media, who were in media res of concern trolling the cause, but who now had a scapegoat for denouncing radicalism. Just like with Black Lives Matter, the bad-faith ghouls, who didn't really want change and were perfectly fine with the status quo, deliberately confused supremacy with priority. And this was a new way of taking that old communist plot and applying it to um, this movement, which... They really didn't care about to begin with. And even after all the heartbreak and suffering, the patience and the resolve, the bravery and the audacity of the civil rights movement, the mere notion that black folks could actually assume their own stance of power and articulate their own demands rather than deferring to the mercy and benevolence of their white superiors was a bridge too far. God damn.
1: Your mind lies in the devil's workshop. Evil doings your thrill. Trouble and mischief is all you live for. You know, done well, and and that you go to hell. You go to hell. So you live in high. You
0: You could see why Nina Simone was fed up with America. And she begins the song by begging God for change. Lord, have mercy on this land of mine. Convinced that we're all going to get it in due time. And ending in complete despair and disillusionment. I don't trust you anymore. This whole country is full of lies. You're all going to die and die like flies. This was a notion she wasn't disabused of at any point thereafter. As late as 1997, when she was questioned uh, by interview magazine on progress that had been made, she responded by quoting her own lyrics and saying, desegregation is a joke. I believe that America is going to die and die like flies, like just like the song says. By that point, She was living in the south of France. She abandoned America pretty much as soon as the 60s ended and jet set around uh, to Barbados, Liberia, the Netherlands, Switzerland, only returning for the occasional concert, funeral, or personal visit to America. It didn't help that she had a warrant out for her arrest for tax evasion, ostensibly conducted as a protest over the criminality of the Vietnam War. But she never masked her contempt for the country that had killed and abused so many of her friends and allies. I don't like America, she once said. I never did. I think they'll sell themselves, their souls, and their brothers and sisters, and their mothers for money. And prejudice there is so insidious and subtle. In a 1970 piece for Red Book, Maya Angelou wrote, Nina Simone represents the eternal artistic enigma. Her personality contains contradictions of gigantic proportions. She is that consummate performer who practices and sharpens, honing her craft to a piercing point. But in personal appearances she displays an aura of considered apathy she's woven into work all the soul learned truths of pain and joy yet she's known by many to be unsocial and ungiving in personal contact nina simone is able to stand on, upon a shadowed stage take in all light and then return that luminescence to her audience in opulent pulsating rays at other times and with no seeming reluctance she rejects the audience rejects their physical fact rejects their loyalty, rejects their devotion. What formed this puzzle? What further convolutes this complexity? America, so Nina Simone says, and her inflection carries centuries of oppression and deferred dreams. America is itself a contradiction. Her sinewy fingers knit dark patterns in the air as she explains that history. Black history, lives for her in the urgency of today, the past being the very alive parent of the future. She is loved or feared, adored or disliked, but few have, who have met music or glimpsed into her soul react with moderation. She is an extremist, extremely realized.
1: She drink coffee, she drink tea, and then go home. She lied, woman, she lied, woman. She lied. She lied, woman. Dressed in green, wear silk stockings with golden seams. Sea-line woman, sea-line woman. Dressed in red, make a man lose his head. Sea-line woman, sea lion woman. Black dress on for a thousand dollars. She wears and she moans. See, I'm a woman. Wiggle, wiggle, turn like a cat. Wink at a man and he wink back. Now I'm childish. She a woman.
0: Abandoning of country in her song corresponds to her lapse in faith. This is evident not only from the aforementioned profanity, repeatedly using the Lord's name in vain to curse, but through the transformation from the first verse to the last. When she begins the song, she's asking the Lord to have mercy on America. And when she declares that the stress and anxiety of living under this level of duress may be too much, she asks, somebody say a prayer. Somebody, mind you, not necessarily her. Whoever's prayer seems to work. Thoughts and prayers. But by the end of the song, she's even stopped believing in prayer. When reduced beyond your most primal, sacred beliefs, stripped of your sense of belonging, your sense of community, your sense of national pride, your sense of decency, you're left with a cold, desolate materialism one that perceives the lived reality of everyone struggling through an unthinkable traumatic moment as merely actors laboring under the delusion that their actions are in any way meaningful. They were all participating in a show tune where the show hadn't been written yet. Martin Luther King's proposal was a radical one, because though it didn't make it explicit, it acknowledged... That what the united states and their deputized citizens in the hate brigades were doing was in fact warfare not arbitrary acts of violence binded through the glue of specific policy decisions that needed to be overturned but an actual extension of the backlash against america's attempt to revoke and provide restitution for its original sin of slavery and what king was saying was that not only were we going to fight back but we were going to win using a method that no one had ever tried before pacifism and nonviolence, civil disobedience and brotherly love. The hope was that this principled stance would shine so bright as an example of righteousness that it would enlighten even those deeply ensnared in white supremacy and lead them towards the light. And it was remarkably effective in effecting change. No one can dispute that the Montgomery Bus Boycott or the Voting Rights Act didn't fundamentally change aspects of American society. But what King and his supporters didn't see was that though people did seem to have sympathy and empathy for his cause, the institutions that acted as extensions of their public and civic life weren't so easy to just shake off. King, like Simone in Mississippi Goddamn, had used notions of theatricality to stage awareness, using the large canvas of black bodies in motion, pushing peace against the blunt, churlish barbarism of police and local authorities' violent resistance as kind of a set piece. And this created a spectacle of collective pain, a mass staging of grief that had hit hereto been contained within Douglass's double consciousness, but suppressed from common view. It was moving, It was shocking, and it was disturbing. Until it wasn't. And this is where movements with no theories of power always push up against the inertia of the resting giant of dominant ideologies, be they patriarchy, capitalism, segregation, what have you. Raising awareness and consciousness is at best a tactic. But once you've achieved your ends, and everyone has become acquainted with the horror it has nowhere to go but to lay dormant in the popular consciousness. It's been normalized now, flattened into the ideology of the era, where it just floats like air. It's something that everybody knows, and everybody knows about Mississippi, goddamn. Everybody. Performing her song around the country, Nina Simone would insert the news of the day into the lyrics of Mississippi Goddamn, like like they were mad libs. Everybody knows about Watts. Everybody knows about Memphis. Everybody knows about Selma. Everybody knows about Ronald Reagan. One could hear this echoing into the present. Everybody knows about Sandy Hook. Everybody knows about Ferguson. Everybody knows about Atlanta. Goddamn. 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 An infinitum. The myth sustains us that the mere presence of the unthinkable will cause someone, somewhere to act. Somebody say a prayer. Send your thoughts and prayers. When the Rodney King video came out, when the Eric Garner video came out, when the George Floyd video came out, it's suspected that the documentary evidence of transparent and clear oppression will be the momentum itself, or will at least cause those arguing for its continuation to just shut the fuck up for once. But that's not the show that we're a part of everybody knew about Emmett Till but his killers were acquitted by an all-white jury segregationists expressed mock outrage over his death but then they used it as an excuse to say well segregation was actually in the best interest of black people because it provided them with safety they didn't if they weren't a part of these communities they, they would be safer and this wouldn't happen and then they twisted the words of his mother who was seeking a settlement out of the uh, states by using a quote that said mississippi is going to pay for this by saying that that actually meant that blacks were planning attacks on the white citizenry and everybody knew about alabama goddamn but no one was actually convicted in the church bombing until 1977 years and years later two other co-conspirators didn't face charges until 2001 and one died in 1994 never having faced any justice Two years after the explosion in um, Birmingham, J. Edgar Hoover was handed evidence, supported by his own agents and local police, who were not exactly the ideal bastions of human rights, that strongly suggested that these four men were the ones who did the crime. The ones that eventually we kind of know are the ones that did it. And what Hoover did was he blocked investigation into the crimes, and instead, he sent Martin Luther King Jr. a note asking him to kill himself. God Damn. Late in his career, the singer Leonard Cohen, whose Suzanne uh, song Simone had covered, exhorted on the same subject, singing of an untenable, unsustainable present that everybody knows about, but no one is prepared to do anything about.
8: Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows Everybody knows the good guys lost, everybody knows the fight was fixed, the poor stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes, everybody knows, everybody knows that the plague is coming. Everybody knows that it's moving fast Everybody knows that the naked man and woman Are just a shining artifact of the past Everybody knows the scene is dead But there's gonna be a meter on your bed That will disclose What everybody knows
0: everybody knows that the plague is coming, and everybody knows it's moving fast. Everybody knows that the naked man and woman are just a shining artifact of the past. Everybody knows the scene is dead, but there's going to be a meter on your bed that will disclose what everybody knows." These last lines are seemingly about sex and puritanism, and in particularly aids which at the time was rapidly spreading and killing off a whole host of of, of young folks particularly young queer folks but just as well leonard cohen explained these lines to be about a plague of alienation disconnection and depression he said if indeed disease does have ultimately a psychic origin then there's a plague of alienation and separation and lassitude and panic a sense of not being in control he told this to poetry commotion magazine in 1988 but when he mentions having a meter on his bed that will disclose what everybody knows he could just as easily be talking about a meter that measures and quantifies dreams because of course dreams take place on our bed as well and dreams are supposed to be a pathway to the imaginary the new unseen horizons but in the song the meter doesn't find that it only shows what everybody knows because in the end we don't really dream of new things and we're limited in our capacity to think beyond the self and the world presented to it. When Simone combined Mississippi Goddamn in concert with Brecht & Wiles' Moon Over Alabama, she deliberately changed the lyrics to form a sort of call-and-response between don't ask why with you-know-why. No new truths are being spoken. Everybody knows about Mississippi. We just needed to wake up, to stop sleeping through the American nightmare enough to be motivated to ask ourselves. Do we really want change? 2008, Barack Obama was well on his way to becoming the first black president, a truly historic feat that many thought would never come to pass. His reign was to come after a tumultuous eight years under George W. Bush, a president whose high approval ratings had begun to crumble after a paltry and insufficient response to Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina had both symbolically and literally broken down levees to expose mass inequities in the living conditions of its poorest residents, largely black and brown communities whose homes were destroyed and whose wealth was incinerated. And as Bush prepared to exit, a financial meltdown was showing pretty much the same thing across the entire country. Everybody knows about Katrina. Everybody knows about the housing crisis. And Obama was running on a soaring rhetoric about hope and change, adopting the slogans from the civil rights movement such as, we are the ones we've been waiting for. He had the momentum of the entire country behind him. But Obama had a problem. Somebody close to him had said the word, Goddamn.
2: And the United States of America government, when it came to treating her citizens of Indian descent fairly, she failed. She put them on reservations. When it came to treating her citizens of Japanese descent fairly, she failed. She put them in internment prison camps. When it came to treating the citizens of African descent fairly, America failed. She put The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America that's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating her citizens as less than human. God damn America, as long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. The United States government has failed the vast majority of her citizens of African descent.
0: of Obama's former Reverend Jeremiah Wright were obviously acting in bath faith. I mean, there's no question about that. Little of what Wright had preached had been inaccurate or even controversial, but the conclusion was not to say everybody knows and pat the country on the back for the progress that we had made. Instead, he said, God damn America. America's full of lies, and we're all going to die and die like flies. And the business leaders, evangelicals, and far-right provocateurs, itchy about Obama's proximity to this kind of radicalism, were concerned. Because they were unsure if his pigmentation posed an existential challenge to their power. And they decided to call his bluff. Did he really want change? Or was he merely just dangling a worm in front of people? to push some mild reforms that ultimately wouldn't upset the balance of power. Either way, it was a losing proposition because it wasn't clear that the white people in the middle classes had actually wanted change or if they just wanted things to go back to normal. But he had also made this promise that things would be different. So if they did go back to normal, it might be clear that this was just another in a line of hucksters. And Obama's response in his more perfect union speech was roundly celebrated and even seen by some as the thing that won him the election. But in the light of what followed, it is dried up like a raisin in the sun, like a dream deferred, as Langston Hughes' poem that would inspire Lorraine Hansberry's famous play once said.
7: On the other end, we've heard my former pastor, Jeremiah Wright, use incendiary language to express views that have the potential not only to widen the racial divide, but views that denigrate both the greatness and the goodness of our nation, and that rightly offend white and black alike. But the remarks that have caused this recent firestorm weren't simply controversial. They weren't simply a religious leader's efforts to speak out against perceived injustice. Instead, they expressed a profoundly distorted view of this country, a view that sees white racism as endemic and that elevates what is wrong with America above all that we know is right with America.
0: Obama refused to fully dismiss Wright, but pretty much did so in all but name only. He equated Wright's diagnostics of American injustice to his white grandmother making ethnic stereotypes, and he positioned his own role uh, as mediator, a third way if you will, between the crazy firebrands of passion on both sides who needed guidance, an adult in the room to tell them when to speak and when to sit down. One of the earliest debacles in obama's presidency involved the black scholar henry lewis gates who was arrested for attempting to break into his own home by a racist white police officer the officer was clearly in the wrong on this occasion it was pretty much open and shut black and white but nevertheless obama summoned a beer summit to try to bridge the divide between the two parties and this accomplished nothing but made for nice headlines and resembled a theatrical staging of change. And this would become emblematic of the racial tensions that would define his late presidency, with the dysfunctional institution of policing and mass incarceration colliding time and time again with petty and non-existent crimes of unarmed black folks, costing them their lives. And now everybody knows about Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Walter Scott, Azelle Ford, Michael Brown, and countless others. God damn. The Congressional Black Caucus, many of whom had been active in the 60s and 70s civil rights marches, too became some of the major voices that were telling Black Lives Matter to go slow. Finally, black folks were in a position of power in the country, but was it anything resembling black power? Or had they just been assimilating to the existing white power structure? trying to scramble as many concessions as they were able to in the process and did they really want change or had they become comfortable enough that the lies that america had told them over and over again either now had the ring of truth or just weren't audible anymore dr king had died in a less favorable spot with the public than he had been in since he started marching And he was now beginning to move beyond civil rights and speak more about the evils of American imperialism and capitalism. But now, he's little more than a hallmark holiday. Some dude who dreamed a dream. Republicans with Blue Lives Matter flags in their front yards can wag about sans irony to admonish anyone reacting against the gale force of state violence to say, how dare you, or they hurt their own cause, or go slow to anybody that might be reacting in any kind of angry or temperamental way. And if King is an amusement park attraction, Simone is now just a needle drop. According to tunefind.com, she's been used in over 230 TV shows and film needle drops, which is not to mention the many commercials that her music has also appeared in. In fact, Obama himself, the guy who put Timothy Geithner and Rahm Emanuel on his cabinet, put Sinner Man on no less than three of his publicly released playlists. Telling. And if what everybody knows remains constant, why do they constantly need a spotlight to see them? Awareness is always rising because it's always simultaneously sinking. Because everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn, but nobody knows about Nina Simone. Everybody knows I have a dream, but nobody knows about Martin Luther King Jr. The history of radicalism is constantly being buried at the same time that it's being dug up to deal with the next goddamn thing. It's buried because it allows those who do not really want change to perpetuate the myth of time, so they can tell us to go slow and wash and clean our ears and to just try and do your very best and stand up and be counted with all the rest. But radical thinking, and particularly radical action, is the only thing that's ever forced progress to not yield its demands to time, because the demand for change is a radical proposition. Are you ready to do what's necessary? Are you ready to change yourself to meet the demands of the moment? This is a show tune, but are you ready to be the one who decides how the show is going to end?
1: don't you know i need you lord don't you know that i need you don't you know that i need you